bring this in for a landing, I need more space. Um, hey, little known fact, the only VeggieTales movie that ever won a Kids' Choice Award. The only VeggieTales movie that didn't feature Bob the Tomato. I knew he was holding them back. As far as I know, the only movie ever made about the life of Esther. But it's awesome! And you guys heard, I'm going to borrow this. Uh, you know, I'll put it back when I'm done. I swear I won't mess it up. Um, you guys heard the magic words for today. The Bible says, if you do not speak, God will redeem his people by another way. But who knows, Esther, that you have come to this royal position. Ready? Say it with me. For such a time is this. That's what we're going to be talking about today is for such a time is this. We're going to dive into this story. We're going to hear how Esther ends up in this position to be the instrument of God to be used to save and redeem her people. But more important, we're going to dive into, hey, I'm Carl, I'm Michael, I'm Rourke. How can God use me where I am for such a time is this? Thank you for being here in the beautiful sunshine. I hope you're all going to come out to the park. Come on, babe. Beautiful day for the park today. Um, please join us if you can. You're going to have enough time to run and get some food and then meet us at the shelter at 1230. We're going to eat. Victoria's going to lead us in praise, worship. Woo! And uh, then we're going to pray. We're going to do some corporate prayer and pray together and ask God. Um, where he can use us. Let me pray for us right now before we get started. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We praise you. Uh, we praise you for your word. We praise you that uh, as we engage your word, your truth just oozes out. Father, you have a word for us today. You, we long that you would just push Carl to the side and speak past him, that we might hear from you in the same powerful way we heard from you through worship and song. Father, speak that we might be changed, changed in ways that change the world for you. And all God's people said, amen. All right, here we go. It is impossible to jump into a story like Esther Without a little background, so you guys are going to have to let me geek out a little here. Um, we're going to have to do a little short history lesson um, so that you guys know the context of this story. As you may know, if you've read the Old Testament, um, there weren't that many good kings. Um, and in fact, in the northern kingdom of Israel, so that's where Samaria is and, um, you know, the northern part. There were no good kings. No good kings. In the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is, there was a eh, good king, okay king, not good, not good, really bad, not good, not good, eh, 
maybe okay. Um, and that's how the story goes. What God decides to do about that is allow his people to be dominated first by the Assyrians. So you guys, little history lesson here. So we've got Egypt. You guys remember that from Moses and the crossing the river and into the land of Canaan and desert for 40 years and all that. Egypt was the ruler of the known world at the time. Can we turn that down just a smidge or that? Um, and so uh, after that, you have Philistines and Chaldeans and Israel and all these people battling out in this void um, where Egypt has lost its power once the Jews leave. The Assyrians rise. They are the worst people who ever lived. Assyrians make Hitler look like a choir boy. They conquer the northern kingdom in 722, and all, all of the Jews are gone into Assyria. They try to conquer the southern kingdom, but God prevails because right then there's a good king in place, and so he protects and, you know, allows them to stay it doesn't get better though they don't respond to that and so we get some bad kings and bad kings finally Babylon comes along and conquers Assyria you guys may have heard of this guy named Nebuchadnezzar um, he's king of Babylon he takes the throne he makes Israel or Judah a vassal state of Babylon they start to pay homage the first deportation to Babylon occurs probably about 605 BC and then Jehoiakim a really bad king is just trying to swindle Nebuchadnezzar and he says enough and in 589 he goes in destroys Jerusalem destroys Solomon's temple and in 588, all, all of the Jews are now exiled and in captivity in Babylon. You guys may know um, the story of Daniel that's happening there. He's prophesying and interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. Well, along comes Cyrus the Great. Everybody's the great back then. I don't know why. Um, and he is a Mede, he's a Persian, and he leads the Persians to conquer the known world, which is all of this stuff, Iran, Iraq, uh, the Middle East, Northern Africa. They just can't seem to cross and conquer Greece, which is now exploding as the next big world power. Um, and when he conquers, he says, Hmm. Jews, go home. I'm setting you free. Captivity is over. And somehow that doesn't stick. So along the way, uh, we go through Darius, who reinvigorates the return to Jerusalem, and then finally Xerxes and Artaxerxes. And you guys may know the stories of... Um, Nehemiah as he comes back to rebuild. 
Um, so we're entering into that. It's important to know because you need to know these Jewish characters in their state. At this point, they're no longer slaves, but they're still in captivity. And so as we meet these characters in here, remember, they are second-class citizens. It's, it's a world in which you can prosper as a Jew. And we're going to meet Mordecai, who has risen to probably captain of the guard, which is awesome for a Jew. But he's not advertising his Jewishness. And we're going to meet his niece, who he says, do not advertise your Jewishness. So as we start in the story, it opens up and it says, this is what happened during the reign of Ahasuerus. We know him as Xerxes. If you've seen the movie 300 or know the story of Thermopylae and Leonidas and the Spartans, in theory, 300 Spartans survived the attack of Xerxes with 50,000, 100,000 men and they were outmatched, but through military strategy and sheer will, they repelled Xerxes. And so he never gets to conquer Greece. But what we learn about him is he is the most narcissistic, egomaniacal, self-loving dude, maybe in the history of mankind. And as we enter the story, that is borne out in the fact that he is in the middle of a 180-day party. He says, we're going to celebrate me. We're going to celebrate my money. We're going to celebrate my power for 180 days. At the time, he's married to what they say might have been the most beautiful woman in the world at the time. Her name was Vashti. At the end of this 180 days, he has a party where they drink for seven days. The Bible says that the drinking was according to the edict of Xerxes, meant no restrictions. This is full-on party for seven days. And the Bible says that when Xerxes was feeling good with wine, he called for Vashti. Put on your crown, baby. Come on out. I want to show you off to everybody who's assembled here. And to her credit, she says, no, you drunken fool. That ain't happening. And so his anger burns, the Bible says. All his little friends who are sitting there drinking with him say, Xerxes, you can't have that. You're the king of the free world. Come on you got to do something. Banish her. And in his drunken rage, he banishes the queen. Perhaps the most beautiful woman in the world. Gone. He's a king with the most beautiful woman, and now he's a king with no woman. What happens then is the biggest beauty pageant the world has ever seen. This isn't Miss America with 50 states. This isn't you know, Miss Universe with 126 countries. This is Xerxes saying, I want you to go out in everything that's mine, from India to Namibia in Africa, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, Mediterranean sea and find every beautiful virgin 
there is. I'm thinking that's a lot. Not only do I want you to find them so you can bring them back and let me pick one, but he says, for one year, we're going to make them even more beautiful. Can you imagine a spa treatment every day for a year? I'm, I think I might be in, actually. I recently had a pedicure, and it was very nice. Um, but he, they're bathed in milk and incense and oils and made even more beautiful for him to pick. Then in chapter 2, we meet Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew whose family, his legacy, has been in captivity since the Babylonians. He's done well. He's probably a captain of the guard. We know that because he is guarding the king's gate. Just a little reference here. This palace has an outer wall. Multiple gates there for things to come in like groceries and horses and stuff like that. But around the building itself, around the gardens, there's just one way in. And that's the king's gate. He's a big deal. And so as a second class Jewish citizen, he has done really, really well. And we read that he has adopted his cousin Hadassah. Poor kid, her parents are dead. He's all she has. And so he adopts her. Her name is Hadassah, which in uh, Hebrew means flower. She's beautiful. The Bible tells us she was fair in form and figure. Um, no surprise, she gets pulled into the beauty pageant. But not before Mordecai can say, hey, don't tell him you're Jewish. Ah, now I get it. Esther. Ah, Esther is a Persian name which she takes so that her name won't give her away in the beauty pageant. You know, this is a story about God. Who wins the beauty pageant? Esther, of course. And she becomes queen of Persia. Now, the most beautiful woman in the world. Um, what happens then is Mordecai is on station at the king's gate. He hears these uh, servants of the king plotting to assassinate him. He lets Esther know to tell the king that this is happening. She gives all the credit to Mordecai. The king is saved the assassins are captured, and Mordecai has saved the king's life. Queen, Mordecai, are you ready? This is where it gets Netflix worthy. Da da da! We meet Haman. Ooh, the crowd says, ooh. Bad dude. He may be second in egomaniacal, narcissistic tendencies only to Xerxes in the world. He just wants to be number two. And he gets his dream. Xerxes says, you are the number two man. Wherever you go, people should bow. He goes out. He walks around. Everybody is bowing. Except... Mordecai, 
I find it amazing that Mordecai has lived in captivity his whole life. His family has been in captivity for generations. And yet, he is holding faithful to the living God of the universe. He ain't bowing to no man. I only bow to the Lord Most High. I've got to tell you, that ticks Haman off in a big, big way. And he sets about scheming and planning. And so he works with the king and he says, King, there is a people who don't recognize you as the master of the known world. They celebrate somebody else. They won't bow before you. They won't bow before me. They won't bow before your greatness. And Xerxes says, well, you ain't having that. And he said, give me the paper. I'll sign. And he signs an edict that all Jews everywhere are going to be eradicated, killed. In the video, I know it's the island of perpetual tickling. That sounds a little bit worse, actually, than... Uh, extermination, but um, I think it's just kid-friendly. Um, so this is where we find ourselves. Mordecai is just beside himself. We're talking sackcloth and ashes as he mourns the fate of his family and his people. He goes and he talks through a servant to the queen, and he says, this is what's happening. And she says, I can't do nothing about it. And he says, yes. For if you don't, God will, remember this, God will redeem and rescue his people by another means. But if you don't, you and your family your father's family, will surely perish. For who knows that you have come to you, this royal position for such a time as this? What is her first response? I need prayer. Come to the park today. We need prayer. It is the first place we go when we want God to move, when we want God to use us, when we want God to redeem, restore, protect, prosper, enhance a ministry. We go to the Lord in prayer, and she says, will you and all of the people pray for me? That she's emboldened. God is on her side. She's asked, if I perish, I perish. And we'll talk about that next week. How do we get there? But she goes before the king. If you go before the king unsolicited, you may be banished. You may lose your head because he's the king of the known world. But he's happy to see her. He says, oh, my most beautiful wife, what can I do for you? Up to half the kingdom is yours. 
And she says, what I really want is for you to come over to dinner. Just come to dinner at my place. It'll be awesome. Bring Haman. King says, okay, we're going to have a feast. Haman is like, this is awesome. Um, And they come and they have dinner. Xerxes is like, what's the deal? What do you really want? And she says, um, um, I just want you to come back and do dinner again. Oh, my goodness. You know how this is. As a little anticipation building, this is getting good. He's, oh, he can't even sleep. He's just so excited. Oh, what is this? What does she want? Um, and that night he can't sleep. What does the king of the known world do when he can't sleep? Ah, he has somebody read back his greatness, his great stories, the stories of his reign. And they happen to come across the story of Mordecai saving his life. And the king says, did we ever do anything for that dude? They say, no. And he says, we oughta. He says, okay, we're doing that first thing in the morning. He says, send for Haman. And so Haman comes in and the king says, what should we do? For the man who has done the most for the king. Haman's thinking, oh, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. And Haman says, I think you should put on one of your robes. Put him on your horse. Get it? He just wants to be the man. And lead him through the city. And Xerxes says, okay, you lead him. It's Mordecai. This has got to be Haman's worst day ever. You think he was unhappy before. Imagine leading Mordecai through the city in a king's robe, on the king's horse, celebrated, everyone bowing, everyone cheering. Oh, Haman's upset. He goes home and he builds the biggest gallows that Susa, the capital of Persia, has ever seen. Because he plans to hang Mordecai on that gallows when the edict is fulfilled. He's mad. And he gets summoned back to Esther's apartments for the second dinner. And the king says, oh, the dinner was delightful. Now what? What? Tell me the anticipation has been building. I couldn't even sleep last night. And she says... O king, in your great mercy, save your humble wife and her people because you have signed an edict for our destruction. (gasps) Xerxes says, what are you talking about? Who, who, how, what? And she said, it was Haman. The king says, oh, I'm having the big one. Oh, my gosh, the worst moment of the king's life. He's allowed his second-in-command to trick him into killing his wife and her people. He asks, I need some air. I need some air. I I, I need a moment to think. You see, here's the problem. If you're the king of Persia and you put your stamp on an edict, there's no take-backs. Even you can't take it back. That's the rules. And so he's just, ah, 
this woman I love, this beautiful, beautiful woman, I'm going to kill her. He goes out for some air. Haman falls at her feet. In fact, he falls on her feet as she's reclining on a sofa. He's literally touching the queen, begging for mercy, begging for his life. The king comes back at, sees Haman on his wife and says, oh, no, you didn't. Haman is bagged, tagged, and hung on that very gallows that he built in five minutes. The king appoints Mordecai into Haman's role. They work together to come up with a plan where not only are the Jews saved, but through the power of God, they are prospered. People come to kill them, and they kill them all in the power of God and collect their stuff, their properties, and what was meant for evil is redeemed by God into greatness for the Jews. For such a time is this. Are you kidding? What a story. I got another one for you. It's a young boy growing up in Philadelphia. He's in a family that doesn't know Jesus. They still don't. He doesn't know nothing about that. He's working really hard on his testimony. <clears throat> um, falls into some serious issues, behaviorally and legally, perhaps. Um, and then miraculously meets the Savior of the known universe, Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. And he's radically changed. Radically changed. He falls deeper and deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. He gets busy about his work. He allows him into his life in powerful ways. He goes to seminary. He plants churches. And today, he's standing right here talking to you about for such a time as this. For such a time is this. You see, God has plans and purposes for you, 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 all of us. Can you imagine? God has placed us uniquely in all sorts of positions, in our jobs, in our families in service at this church, in our communities. We're Little League coaches. We're Boy Scout leaders. We're working at Dick's. We're working at Starbucks. We're working at the greatest employer in Richmond, CarMax. Could be. Um, why? For such a time as this. You see, we've talked about a verse often over the last couple months. Ephesians 2.10. Here's the truth. None of this is by happenstance. For we are created in Christ Jesus as a masterpiece to do the works that he has prepared for us. That's not just one thing. That's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, next Sunday. You'll be back, back here because you want the second part of this. Trust me. Um, I'll tell you how to do it. 
He's got works for us to do. How awesome is that? You know, you guys may not realize this, but there's 120,000 people who live within three to four miles of this church. Many of them do not know Jesus. Many of them do not know that God is crazy in love with them. I mean, when I say crazy in love, you guys can't even comprehend that. God is madly in love with you, madly in love with me, madly in love with them, and he wants nothing more than to be in relationship with them. And for some crazy reason, he has decided we're the ones to do it. <laughs> it's crazy. But that's what he's decided. For such a time is this. He has placed us in these roles in our community, in these roles in our schools, in these roles in this ministry, in these roles in our jobs, in our families, our neighborhoods, to reach these people, to redeem these people, to move mightily. He has plans and purposes. And guess what? You are a masterpiece. You're perfect to do it. How awesome is that? If you can't get geeked up about that, you can't get geeked up about anything. Trust me. That has got to be the most amazing thing that I've ever heard in my life. So as we contemplate this story today, we see a young woman who God clearly made beautiful so that she might become queen, so that she would be in position to redeem, to restore, to save her people. He has called Carl to himself after just not a great start to life. He has fed him, thrown him to his knees, thrown him into his word, changed him, and called him to be here today to challenge you to touch he's called you to for such a time is this for every single one of us as the band comes back up I want you to think about what that is this week as you go go ahead read the story of Esther it's uh you know Takes, it's, it, it is Netflix worthy. I'm not even kidding you. It is such a fast read because it's so action-packed and powerful. Um, go ahead and take a read of it and contemplate. Where has God put me? What is he calling me to? And more than anything, pray. Where does it start for Esther? It starts in prayer. Where does it start for us? It starts in prayer to be in the conversation with God that we might hear clearly as to what he's calling us to. Maybe it starts this afternoon. Come out to the park. We'll stay dry. Stop and get, you know, some Subway. I know Chick-fil-A is not open on Sundays because that's what I'd prefer. But, um, but grab some food. Come to Shelter 4 at Deep Run. Praise, worship with us. And then pray with us. Let's hit our knees and find out what our 
such a time as this is in our lives. 